Namo tassa bhagavato arato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arato samma sambuddhasa For all beings, wisdom, compassion, non-cling awareness. And I will awaken quickly for the sake of all beings. Good, well, at the end of tonight we are exactly 30%, 30.01 or something like that percent of the way through the text. I think that's about right, yes. Not that we're rushing, but I want to keep an eye on it because sometimes it's only a couple pages, sometimes only half a page. Any uh, questions arising from one's meditations and contemplations? Yes. I, uh, have, I think I've made an assumption I'd like to check with you, uh, Mark. Uh, I wonder if the, the more clarity one has or being has about the idea of transience and impermanence. Yep. The easier it becomes to be spontaneous in generosity, in kindness, and in compassion, because the thought I had, which I wondered about, is that you never know when it might be the last opportunity you have to do that to somebody else, or that they may be able to receive it from you. Yes, at a at an ordinary at an ordinary good wholesome level. Uh, that would be the case. At a more refined uh, level of awareness and transcendence, that would be uh, clinging. Yeah. Because uh, you you want you want to. Um, uh, so so at, as a practice of virtue, good. As a practice of virtue, also not so good because it's tainted with you never know how long I have. Uh, this shall be good, or I could do someone for some, or I could get something in return. So there's there's an element there, the way you said it. But uh, so good practice, we have to make sure that you're not um, doing it because you're going to get something in return, which is a rich life. Or see, so the way you phrased it, if I had a, if I could tape it back, if I could play it back, mm-hmm. is you're going to get something out of it. seems to me that there are times when there may be, um, and maybe this is clinging too, there may be regret that, oh, I wish I'd said because now they're gone or now they're... Again, yep, it's clinging. Is that clinging yep, as well? Yep, it oh, sure okay. is. All right, okay. But, but at a cruder level of starting to practice, good. Mm-hmm. But it's tainted. And one has to watch, if I'd only done that, I wouldn't have the guilt later. Uh-huh. You see? If I do this, I won't have suffering in future states. But this is in some ways where the, the text starts. But one always has to say, what am I doing? Like, how do I, how do I come out of clinging? How do I come out of clinging? How do I come out of clinging? So you see, uh, as the, the text goes back and forth to some degree, but uh, this, is, this is the, 
the taint that happens sometimes in, uh, in teaching Dharma, one has to watch that it doesn't, these practices aren't just for you, they're for other people, and watch where the clinging is in them. It's very easy to slip it in. Sure. So, another clinging, yes. Well, another clinging a little bit. I'm trying to get clear about this because what if it is not necessarily, and maybe I am clinging to this, but not. Now you hear it, yes? Yeah, now that I know that I'm clinging. But what if it is gen- uh, genuinely uh, uh, in gratitude or in compassion to somebody else that you, the, the generosity just comes? And sometimes, you know, you think, oh, well, I won't say it right now because it... Mm. And that, that maybe there should be more flow to... You know... Or am I still clinging? You're still clinging. You're, th- you're clinging to thinking out how it's going to work when a mind that's truly getting clearer and clearer about non-clinging awareness doesn't have to think it out. Very rarely does it have to think it out. It just needs to feel the right, the right moment. Why? Because you're purifying the depths. As the depths become more pure, then there's spontaneous arisings of generosity and you don't have to go, wow, look at that or that was neat or what moment is that, should I pick? No, it's just more and more spontaneous. So the, the greater the freedom, the greater the freedom in the actual wisdom of transience which confers non-clinging awareness conjoined with loving kindness should. Okay? Should. That means if it's on, it does. If it's not, there's something wrong. That true wisdom then allows a freedom to spontaneously be generous without contriving or worrying about shame or guilt later, later, later. So really, why do you have to purify? Why all this virtue, this emphasis on virtue? Is to purify the ground of one's um, patterning through awareness, through mindfulness. So the speech and everything else becomes more and more clear, more and more uh, generous. Not lovey-dovey-dovey, but just you know, clear and good or uh, skillful so that uh, you don't have regrets. You don't have to think about regrets. And eventually, as it says in some of the texts, you have to uh, do away with the good. Even the act, act of good is clinging. You neither cling to the good nor you cling to the bad. So at the beginning, you practice virtue. And if it's about, for some people, if it's about less shame later on or less guilt, good. In other words, how about this? Do good things now because you won't suffer, you won't suffer as much later. And in future births, you won't go to hell. Well, you could laugh at it, but that's actually often how it's taught. Because uh, improper activity now heaps up uh, for for weak minds, which is a good majority of beings for for weakened minds, the karmic repercussions can be terrible in this life, and they don't know what comes and hits them. And, and people have to stop focusing on illness, but talk about mental distress, mental uh, conundruming, mental bewilderment, right. and less about. Oh well, I did these things, therefore I'm going to get cancer or ALS or you know or whatever it is. No, that's that not necessarily. So refining then, and being aware of those moments of of 
outdoor non-judgment or mm. expectation mm. so that ultimately there is this um, bubbling of spontaneity mm. yeah bubbling flow of flow of spontaneity that's also very skillful but that also take that's also not just something that happens because you get clearer and clearer you have to also test the universe so one actually has to go forth and, and discover and explore. If one doesn't do that, uh, you can be in a very safe kind of perhaps retreat or monastic environment and haven't explored the world really. So test your theory. Test it. Test it. Go forth and test it. See how it works. It's good. Every once in a while you get bumped. Womp. You wonder why. Something. Something did it. And even if you have nothing really to do with it, how you react is still your bump. So people go, well, that wasn't my stuff. But if you're still carrying around for three months or four months or six months or a year or two years, it's your stuff. You soaked it in. Your stuff. Deal with it. Take care of it. And uh, you eventually you become quite fearless. Why? It's... The nature of the universe is empty. So that fearlessness comes because you actually know the nature of this empty universe. Not because it's empty, but it's always emptying. And it's always refreshing. And its nature is empty. And it's empty of any clinging at all. It's very awake. And that's why sometimes it hurts a lot. It's very, very awake, and we bump into it. Wow. But we ascribe all kinds of meanings to it. All, all kinds of stories. So, so this is the thing. This is why, this is why uh, the, I'm always emphasizing, and I know uh, Namjoon Rinpoche did, uh, the removal of fantasy and stories. You have to get very, very good at it. Stop fantasizing and stop making up stories. And when you do make up stories... You can joke about it and you know and you're very aware at all levels that these are stories. But you don't have to say it's a story. We, we had a discussion today about a whole bunch of stories, science stories, uh, how certain things at one level are then described at another level and completely revised. And what uh, you see and what you explain at one level doesn't necessarily apply to another level. This is very important. It doesn't make it wrong. The amazing thing about, for instance, science is how well it works. And some eminent people have said this about the uh, modern um, attitude towards science as being, well, who, it's just an idea, right? It's just people's idea. But actually, if you look at it, the success of putting a man, a man and women into outer space, into a space station, or on the moon, if you contemplate or think about what's involved in predictive theory, in building machine parts, storing up gases, igniting them, putting a rocket into orbit, right, getting a, and so on, to the, to the moon, and back safely, is an extraordinary achievement of not just human ingenuity, but an understanding of physics and chemistry, uh, mathematics, material sciences, predict, uh, oh, uh, gravity, biology, physiology, at an incredible level. Over and over and over and over and over again, including medicine and so on. So uh, 
that's good. But what's fantastic is uh, how often one thing that works on one level is seen to be absolutely uh, the wrong story. And no, but it worked, but it wasn't the right story. So this is what I find so fascinating about science. And, and you have to actually do science to get a, a, a feeling for dwelling in uh, stories or models that work, but not grasping onto them. This is marvelous. I just read a beautiful one. Uh, it's okay, I won't go on much longer, but a beautiful one today about uh, Bateson, 1948, an experiment, very famous experiments in 1948 about sexual selection in fruit flies. Very groundbreaking work to do with the application of evolution and natural selection and sexual selection in uh, all species. And it was used for years and years and years. Beautiful, beautiful thing done with beautiful observation, so on. Some people this year just reviewed the same experiment, did it again, and because of modern knowledge and modern understanding of statistics and all kinds of things, just because I'm completely wrong. Just Nobody ever returned to that experiment, that famous experiment from 1948 which a lot of thing, ideas and models are based on, they said, they just concluded that wasn't done well. 1948, you couldn't do this very well. Just couldn't do it. But they still got a model that worked for a long time, but just happened to be not describing what was going on. So this is fascinating. Yeah? So one has to be very careful of all the stored up views and stories, uh, even to the level of generosity. So this is, this is why one has to purify this out. Story after story after story. So the art is to have enough experiences residing in non-clinging awareness of no story-making, non-conceptual fabrication and getting used to the joy and surrendering to that and that actions can be based on that quality of mind. This is really beautiful. Don't have to think of it. And some of you already know this, or most of you already know this, because you've done it so many times in your life where you didn't have to think anything else. You just did it. It was beautiful. Have you all experienced doing something that you didn't think about, you just did, and it was utterly beautiful? Anybody? How many, many times? Well, that quality of utter beauty, stark, beautiful, glory without going through a whole bunch of mental shenanigans and stories is how you want to live your life more and more and more. Except when you have to think. Yep, you got to balance your bank accounts or pay your visa bill. There's times when you have to think. Hmm? Or weighing up whether it's going to be a 60-40 blend of Hawaiian versus Guatemalan or, or you know, 30-70, this kind of thing in your there's thinking. That's good thinking. But there's way too much shenanigans. It's just, you know, mental fabrications. You have to get used to what it's like to actually make decisions and just flow and do things without even giving a thought. Just, just beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. You just get better at it. And that has to do with an understanding, a real understanding of emptiness. Because... Right now, your minds are completely empty, aren't they? Now, do I mean blank? Well, maybe. I'm just kidding. It's a joke. But, but actually, they are. That's the beautiful thing. 
they are, actually. Completely open, spacious and vivid. So, so the more you know that, the more you can just let things freely arise in that space. But if you're not purified, then what arises in that space? Utter, sheer delusion. So this is what you have to do. Purification, 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 purification. This is a whole text of purification. God, purify down to the depths. Okay? Any other, any, any other questions? Yes? Um, in the section on impermanence, I was surprised that there wasn't stuff on you know, the decay of mental faculties in the body, and of course it's in the next chapter, but I kept wondering why it wasn't there. Decay of mental faculties? Yeah. And the body? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the, the uh, last night... Uh, oh, you missed that. The last night, um, or the night before, uh, there was um, a brief discussion on 32, meditation on 32 parts of the body. That directly leads to that. And it's covered in here, but it's covered very briefly. So many things are covered very briefly. Expect, you just, it's just covered in detail at some other point as a meditation. But the meditation on 32 parts of the body is one of the great classic meditations that comes up uh, both the Theravada tradition, the Mahayana tradition, and the Vajrayana traditions, uh, especially those who practice Vajrayana, often get taught it uh, as the Chod tradition of Macho de Lobdrung, uh, where one visualizes your body being cut up in, in, in great detail to remove, uh, develop greater discernment and remove clinging on that level. Uh, so there are many, many meditations uh, that, um, that do that. And of course, it's one of the most direct meditations to experience uh, not just the transience uh, of the body-mind-emotional complex, but to experience the open, the anatta um, experience, the no-self-nature uh, so, uh, no of the body and the uh, sensations, the feelings, and so on. So it's basically four foundations of mindfulness. Of course, in the uh, tradition of Chod, uh, tremendous emphasis is placed on compassion as well, and the inner yogas. So. Okay, so it's there, for sure. For sure, for sure. And we'll come back to it. Of course, it's easy. It's actually very, very, just so, so we, we come back to that a little bit, I was going to mention that tonight, is the, one of the most beautiful meditations, which is done in Mahamudra, uh, in the Zogchen texts, and so on, uh, it can be done as a tantric meditation. It can be done as a contemplation of pure uh, Mahamudra without much support and so on. Is to look at different parts of your body and try to find a self in there. This is very direct. All of you can do this. This would be a very good one for you to spend time with um, in the next number of days. But is to go through your body. You can call it scanning, but you, you spend time with a, with a sensation of what you may imagine to be your sensation, your bones or your skin or flesh or an eyeball or scalp or maybe your um, forearm is, is sore or a thumb is sore or your, your toe is acting up or your knees, whatever it is. And you, you see over and over and over again if you can find a self in there. Is the thumb self? Is the ache in the toe self, is that really uncomfortable feeling in the knee, me, myself. And you keep doing that. And as, as you go around the body, and you do it over and over again, you're going to find out that there is no self that you can find in these parts. Only the mind conjures up my knee. 
But while you're experiencing the knee, there's no self. So where does it come from? Mental. Mental fabrication. And if you do that with the entire body, of course, you'll, you'll find that it's hollow. Just as it said in the text, remember the other night? Like a such and such tree? Hmm? Like a water tree. And in the Theravadan tradition of meditations, it's called a plantain. It's the plantain uh, banana tree, which, which is basically not really even a tree. It's a, it's a, um, it's a, it's a vegetable. It's, it's layer upon layer upon layer of basically bark of, uh, of leaves that unfold, and it collects water in there. And uh, if you open it up, you realize it's not a solid tree, but it looks like a tree. In the same way that a human being appears solid, but actually is not. All kinds of hollow areas and fluid field areas and so on. So, One of the great profound meditations on the body that leads to profound insight of feelings, mental states, and consciousness. And it's very direct. Been used for hundreds of thousands of beings throughout time, both in the uh, Theravadan and Mahayana and Vajrayana um, traditions. Okay, any others? Yes. Um, could you distinguish between self and ego? Yeah. Yeah, I could. Can you? Take a, take 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 a try. Like many students, they know the answer already. What do you what do you feel is the difference or similarity between ego, what we call ego? You know, ego is not a well defined term. You know that, eh? Both in psychology and therapy and common usage. It's a really messy term. It's like saying algae. It's about as poor as algae. Okay? It's a pretty nebulous term. And it's defined in many, many ways depending on the context. Would you say it's a very scientific term, ego? Not to challenge you. Would you as a psychologist? Would you say it's a, a very carefully defined term? No. And, but it's used a lot in, in cultural, in language, yes? without any specific meaning at all. Like saying emptiness, people go, oh yeah, I know. Or, or uh, self. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is, there a, oh, really, is there a very exacting definition of self? Why not? Don't you think after all this time, psychologists, well, you remember the associations. <laughs> oh, don't, don't you by this time have a very, very <laughs> finely crafted scientific definition of self? Do you? No. Not you personally. I, I don't. But, but there's one. How about ego? No? No. So maybe not even worth considering. But ego has been used in Buddhist texts, Buddhist translations for a long time, yes? You see it in commentaries all the time? Is it defined? Very rarely. How about self? Very rarely. But when it comes to Buddhist texts, self is described ad infinitum in detail because it's nailed, because it becomes the problem, as it is, of course, right? Inside, but, but built up to a very important thing. It's exactly the opposite in Buddha Dharma. It's uh, analyzed and meditated upon to incredible de- t- detail because uh, it is the, um, 
the imaginary structure that causes the most confusion and the most suffering. But the use of the ego is a very slippery term, which has many, many meanings. So occasionally I use it, but I don't use it very much. Ego. I don't I stay away from it, just as I stay away from another nebulous term called unconscious. Stay away from it as much as I can. Sometimes I use it, but it's another one that I'm not so so keen on. But there was a real wondrous era in uh, Buddhist circles for a long time, which was killing the ego off. As if the ego was a very nasty piece of business that had to be slain and killed and destroyed because people walk around with this bad feeling, which is really a bad feeling about your ego. Yourself, your feeling of self is bad. It's, it's not a good um, object to you. So you go and you kill it. And lots of people go to Buddha Dharma to go kill it on quests of killing it. And the only thing they kill is themselves. But uh, really what we're talking about when we talk about ego is a weak ego. A weak ego, a weak uh, view of self is a very dangerous thing indeed. It causes a lot of pain. What you want is a very, very strong view and feeling of your imaginary self. Very healthy. Yeah, very, very healthy view of your imaginary self that can be used really, really well in a loving, compassionate way, but is seen to be just that. So you will see that among many, 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 all the saintly beings I've ever met, accomplished beings I've ever met, they have really big egos. Big, big egos. Why they have big, big egos? Really healthy egos. It's almost the more awake they become and more compassionate, the bigger the ego becomes. And also the greater the humility. At the same time. Big, strong egos, unshakable, but utter humility in the face of knowing it's a total fabrication. So this is what you want. Okay, just a little bit. I don't, I don't see any more questions at all. Nor do I hear any more questions. Now, the last line, I believe, uh, two nights ago, hereafter we are thrown to the lower realms through the maturation of the result. And you do know that people enter the hell realms in this life, yes? Through purely imagination. Some day after day, week after week, month after month, purely through their imagination efforts. You, you know that, yes? Nothing to do with wars, although they can create wars. That's a very normal way. But they create wars in the family. They create wars within themselves. Uh, there's a lovely statement uh, many years ago that was told to me. Uh, I believe, I'll, I'll try to quote it, but I, I believe it was, uh, well, so, someone who's teaching today, who's a lovely, lovely Dharma teacher and uh, quite accomplished being. And uh, they were hosting uh, the head of one of the Tibetan schools and hosting or talking to the, and they were on about uh, 
peace activ act, being a peace activist, and uh, why are not something about not more teachers involved in uh, uh, protesting against war and so on, and uh, in a in a ha in a haughty, strong way. This is this is the most important thing. And the teacher turned to him and said, "Well, it might might be best to actually start with the war in yourself." the war in, in our own beings. And that was a very important turning point for them. So being consumed by the war of others when in fact the war is uh, consuming them, the inner wars. And then the wars in family, the wars with relationships, the wars with colleagues and so on and so on and so forth. It spreads it. So living hell. The lower realms through creating living hell on this planet Earth, not just by inflicting terrible suffering for other people, but uh, through imaginations until it becomes so big that you have an ogre on your hands. Yes? And, and I wouldn't say any of you know this, but your friends, yes, and relatives might know this experience of creating ogres uh, in your, you know ogre? ogre? Ogres in your life that get out of hand. Yes? And take on legs and arms, they get very sticky. So that there's, there's some kind of substance that gets exuded out the hands and the feet. It's a sticky substance like amber or some kind of tarry, sappy substance that once it gets going, the fantasy and the story, it exudes out the hands and it gets stuck to things. And, and takes can take years to let go, eh? to undo that, that stickiness. Yes? But not, you wouldn't know this, but you might want to ask some of your friends or your family, yes, about this, this uh, type of experience where the, it gets very sticky. But, but, but I, can, I can see not, not any of you. No, 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 no. Okay. C, this is page 89 if you're, if you're wondering. C, we cannot be helped by our own bodies. Now back to the bodies. You knew it would come back to that, didn't you? Back to the body. We cannot be helped by our own bodies. Why? We cannot get help from the qualities of the body, nor from the body itself. That saying is the body is undependable. If you really want mental freedom, you can spend the rest of your life trying to get your body right. And there's thousands of people doing this, millions right now, trying to get your body to be happy and right but it is not actually the avenue. It may be partly the support, but it's not actually the railroad to freedom. Because no matter what you do, you're going to find the body just keeps decaying and realigning itself and old habits. And then you remove yourself through those habits or realign itself. And there may be others. So in the end, it's... And I've met people... Uh, who spend uh, obsessive amounts of time being healthy, physically healthy, and then because of that drop dead. Oh yeah, uh, it's been well documented. Yeah, And then of course other lazy bums, uh, uh, they also drop dead. So, uh... <laughs> But, but uh, through medical science, it is determined that some exercise, some exercise and some healthful exercise and so on, does uh, in the end uh, 
allow you to live, about, I think it's about two years longer, something like that on average, or maybe a year and a half, something. You get a little bit of longer. But then other people that are physically fit, beautiful, beautiful, run and do yoga and so on, and drop dead at you know, 40 or 50 suddenly. There is a new, a new syndrome that's been well-documented recently and studied, which is uh, very, very fit people who, when they come off it, uh, suffer uh, quite a bit and go through all kinds of physiological problems because they've been so fit. It's a new, n- new being well-studied phenomena, the dangers of being so, especially Olympic athletes, the, the ill health that comes afterwards or can come afterwards with Olympic or very, very high um, athletes. Uh, not just psychologically, but what happens to the body afterwards. So, so be careful. But we have to take care of our bodies. We cannot get help from the qualities of the body nor from the body itself. That's not really... So when he says help, he doesn't mean feeling good, does he? He doesn't mean that. He means ultimate help of Buddhahood. He means ultimate realization of the clear light nature of the mind. Because beings who've been very sick and not well have also done this work. Because they've used that pain uh, as well to um, um, see the clinging around it. The harm for this life is great suffering from the fear that they may die, get sick, or be defeated by others. This is really about uh, spending so much time focused on the body because, gee, someday I might get sick. So I've really got to spend all this time on my body because it's going to defeat sickness. By the way, it doesn't always. Uh, If I get my body just right, I won't die. What have we learned so far? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how fit you are, what's going to happen? You're going to die. Okay. Or be defeated by others. What does that mean? At any time, a very beautifully fit body, can. what can happen to it? Hit by a bus. Anything. Anything. I watched that firsthand when I was a teen. I didn't see it firsthand. It was actually not very far away. But I used to um, not ride in the same team, but I used to watch him quite a bit is an Olympic-class cyclist. We are um, often cycling in the same area or in the same cyclodrome, you know, these things, when I was a competitive cyclist. And man, this man, this man was very different than a, a very famous comedian, very different than any other cyclist uh, I'd ever met. His body wasn't normal. He was an Olympic cyclist. It wasn't normal. You just look at it and you go, this is, this is something very different. And uh, he used to win almost all the races. But one day he was cycling, not too far from where I lived. He was cycling and uh, went into the back of a truck. Paraplegic. Just like that. I think he was 19, 21, something like that. Height of, height of his career. Wasn't paying attention. Something like not paying attention. Went right into the back of a truck. And um, very serious consequences. So we don't know, do we? Don't know. But very fit up to that one second. First, no matter how powerful and strong the body may be, it cannot turn back death. I think you'll see that this has been 
seen over and over again in, in wars, in combat, all kinds of things. Yes? No matter how limber and swift, it cannot escape death. So being very careful, corrective. No matter what you do, one cannot escape death. No matter how learned and eloquent we may be, we cannot escape death by debating. Well, that's for, uh, obviously, for beings that are uh, monastic, usually, and whole monasteries, by the way, debating. So no matter how good you get, guys and gals, usually guys, that's not going to save you either. Okay? Even the best die. Yeah? Dalai Lamas die. Tsongkhapa died. The very best debaters die. Opera singers die. For example, when the sun is setting on the mountains, no one can postpone or hold it back. The body itself cannot help, it is said, the body which is well sustained by food and clothes that are accumulated through great hardship will not accompany you, but will be eaten by birds or dogs or cremated in a blazing fire, or will rot under the water, or be bur buried under the ground, or stolen by your children, or so on, or passed on to your children. Besides not bringing benefit at the time of death, it will cause harm in this life and hereafter. The harm in this life is that, is that this body cannot tolerate sickness, heat, cold, hunger, thirst, the fear that someone will hit or beat it, the fear that someone may kill it, the fear that someone may torture it, or the fear that someone may skin it. What kind of culture were they living in? Not a culture we're familiar with, is it? But, a, but, but in those days, very real possibility. When they talk about the cannibals and they talk about the barbarians, that means that if you lose a battle or you get captured, you may find that you're impaled on a stick uh, outside the gates of a place or um, you'll have your skin cut off and displayed, these kinds of things. So they lived with that. They lived with that kind of knowledge. Yeah? By the way, it's happening today, just so you know. These kinds of atrocities uh, happen today. Uh, not in Canada, but they happen today around the world. There's some happening right now in different parts of the world where um, noses are hacked off. Yes, in the Congo, it's a very common method to bring fear to communities. In the Congo, is cut the nose off, cut one hand off, cut feet off, yes, all kinds of stuff. So, so don't, don't take this as being um, to scare you. Uh, realize they lived in a world where these were real possibilities that you're in your cave meditating, can happen, or in a village, hmm? or in a monastery meditating, and hordes of barbarians or the king's man or the emperor would come through or whatever it was, military, and they'd kill you. you might hack off your head. I'm not trying to bring fear to it. This is reality in some places. In Japan, uh, you'd be sitting in a monastery maybe, and if there's a little bit of a political problem going on, the, the shogun uh, might decide to invade and burn the entire monastery down with, with the mo all the monks sitting in there. It's for real. For absolute real. Or torture them all. So, don't, don't feel that through history, just because we're living 
in a very, very unusual time right now in history that this is an extreme case of Catholicism trying to drive you to a place where now you're shuddering and shaking and must be converted to a Buddhist. This is actually a description of what life was like as a real possibility of never knowing when you're going to be invaded by China or Nepal or a marauding monastery or the troops from the warlord three valleys over, yes, and chased up a mountain or all the uh, folks in the, in the village are raped and, and skinned. This is for real, for real. So if that was happening and you knew about this as a fairly regular phenomena or irregular phenomena, but, but not like a Canadian, you might actually, when you set out on horseback or yakback or on foot through the mountains, what kinds of fears might you have that you would not have now driving from here to Edmonton or Calgary? What would those fears be? Real fears, real anxieties. What would they be? Robbers. Robbers, and not just taking your money, right? What would they do? Be killed or tortured and leave you hanging over a tree. That's for real. Yeah? And it happens in other countries. I've come close. Really close. Really, really close. Just to let you know. So I'm, this is not... not uh, I've had uh, two times where I've talked my way out of it. This is not uh, imagination. This is, goes on all over the place. It's happening today. But we're very fortunate. We live in a, in a place that's amazing. Uh, when I was invited to Mozambique... Uh, on the first couple emails I received for a contract I, I, I did um, 2001, something like that. Uh, I think it was the last, last bit of work I ever, work, I mean, ever did. But, uh, a contract in Mozambique. Uh, I was told that just to be prepared, I'd just let you know that when we go up the coast, we have to drive in convoys. So there has to be a vehicle in front and a vehicle back, uh, behind because there's still landmines. They're still clearing landmines, and there's the occasional um, attack by um, um, warring factions from the from the from the uh, civil war. Just to let you know, in case you want to change your mind, that we have to go armed. So this is this is, and, and that was at the end. So the the uh, that was about uh, whenever that date was, and then by the time I arrived, I said, "Well, where's our, our convoy?" Oh, it's all finished. Hasn't happened for so long. It hasn't happened for like now a year and a half or something like that, so we're not going to bother to take a Jeep. We'll take two Jeeps, but we're just taking a Jeep. But as we went along, uh, we could see the Canadian um, blockades where the Canadians were actually clearing landmines up uh, roads just off the main highway. Still, so many, so many mines were laid. And still people being killed by going and farming and stepping on a landmine. So this, this is... So just to get a perspective, this is still going on today all over the world. People are being maimed and killed, and then the leftover of war, maimed and killed. And then, of course, the torture isn't just being tortured, it is a life of utter pain, agony, no work, all kinds of things. So very, very serious. Hereafter by this body's faults. Now, what's it saying here? 
Hereafter, by this body's faults, we are thrown to the lower realms through the maturation result. Well, by the uh, body's faults, what are, is this, what are the body's faults? Well, if you really look at it, have you noticed, some of you, that the body isn't really that strong? Have you gotten a handle on that? It's very easy to break bones. It's very easy to get sick. It's actually quite easy to fall down and create serious harm, isn't it? Isn't that amazing? You could fall on your knee and have damage for the rest of your life, just like that. Maybe put your knee down in the garden and realize you've got consequences now for the rest of your life. That's it. Go skiing once. It's very fragile. Be on a plane or be somewhere and someone you know coughs on you and you've got something happening for three or four years of your life. Let, let alone eat junk food for um, 15 years or 20 years when you're growing up and, and, and the consequences of that. It's very, very fragile having a body. Some people are endowed with extraordinarily strong bodies and make it. How? I don't, you know, I don't know. But, but it's, it's very, very fragile. So remember, we can't handle extremes very well of temperature. We can't handle a lot but yet we do because we've created un, uh, extraordinary uh, medicine, extraordinary healing, not just modern medicine, but other kinds of medicine, um, and uh, types of equipment, all kinds of things. Uh, clothing. Extraordinary. When I lived in the Arctic, in Iqaluit, uh just about every year, I think just about every year, uh, there would be people go out on the snowmobile and not come back. Just going out for the afternoon or the a day trip, a blizzard would come up, and the word would go out they're gone, and usually you know they don't come back. Or we'd have a blizzard in town, like a three-day blizzard, and at the end of it, uh, one or two people died uh, crossing the road or trying to get from one building to another, or were slightly intoxicated and walked out. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, is it still happening? Yeah, it's still happening. Yeah, very dangerous. So you leave your building a little bit intoxicated, not feeling well, whatever it is, and you don't make it across the street or the next building. Still happening. Very fragile. Remember a, a boat, a boat, a group going down the harbor, the harbor to um, go seal hunting? All of them died. Just capsized. Entire boat. All of them. Really skilled hunters, really experienced, gone. This is very common to live in a community where People go out, and they don't come back. People go out, and they come back. Very fragile. Friends, students, gone. Incredibly fragile. B, applying others' impermanence to oneself. Now, let me go back to this about the lower realms. The clinging to body is like no other clinging. So you may say the clinging to emotion is huge, but for a lot of people, the clinging around body and what it drives you to do you know, can produce hellish states. And what they mean here is that that kind of clinging to have a body or be comfortable or have pleasure around body, all these kinds of things, can mount up tremendous loads of negative activity called karma and lead to a mental re rebirth in hellish states. If it's not hell in this life, because I've met all kinds of people 
that have hellish lives, especially when you get, you know, it's like fire and brimstone, especially when you get to your 60s and 70s and 80s and all that patterning catches up with you. Yeah? And your mind is thrown repeatedly in old age and physical disablement uh, into hellish states over and over again. Is that right? Can you think of any examples? Do you know people like that? Over the loop goes over. Visit in the hospital. Visit them on their sick bed. Go home, go visit in their home. The dialogue over and over, over again. A living hell. They're already in hell. They're already in hell. My body, my poor body, my painful body, my my life. You know, my kids left me. They didn't take care of me. Nobody's taking care of me. Over and over and over and over. Does it sound sad? It is sad. How did that happen? How did it happen? Is it reality? No. How did it happen? Their mind in attachment to body and pleasure, everything else, created that situation for them. Hmm? So, thrown into hell? Yeah. Yes. Um, I have a question about dementia. So, do you think that dementia is created in part by a certain type of clinging to it can. Again, like all forms, people say the same thing about cancer or anything else. There's all kinds of people that get dementia that are very bright, lovely, and fine. So obviously there's a genetic, a genetic component to it. And partly is people are just living too long. We're living, you know, this is something I keep having to remind uh, humans over and over again. Is only 100 years ago, uh, well, I can point you're still alive. Very close to death. Dead. 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 Almost dying. Ten years left to go. Dead. Eight or nine years. Long gone. Dead. Dead. So what's that? About half the room or more than half the room? Statistically gone. Gone. Gone, gone, gone. 55, 52, 53. You're gone. And what will be left in the room? All these young ones that are looking very old, actually, because they're almost ready to die. <laughs> That's what it is. And occasionally beings getting to 80, but actually not that common. Yes, if you're a yogi, because you know what? It's actually a better life. You get out of the disease communities, you get away from pestilence and disease, and you do yoga, and you're breathing fresh air and you're eating vegetables and you're out there, yeah, you can live a lot, much longer unless you get eaten by a, a, a snow leopard or fall over and break your leg and then you die, you know, so on. Or, or eat bad food or eat two-year-old apricots that are now rotting and you, you, you pass away. But the point is, uh, that's actually a healthier life. So is that an answer? We're, we're, all, we're all living. We've got all these kinds of illnesses because we're actually living really long. And our faculties, brains deteriorate. Uh, some of it's due to, to pollution, some of it's due to... So you can bring on uh, terrible diseases through mental activity. But go take a look at all the people that live till 99 or 105 or 89 that are really nutball cases with really crappy mind states and they cause 
infinite harm to their families and twist them all up in knots and they have a wonderfully long life with absolutely clear minds and they're still at it, they're still after, still at hateful, deceitful, ugly states and they're 92 and they're still killing off their family members with verbal abuse. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yes? Okay, so explain that. Why aren't they experiencing why aren't they experiencing dementia? And why why believe that just uh, it, it's somehow something you did early on in life, maybe you didn't have the right cognitive processes that, that didn't that all of a sudden at fifty five or sixty and now you've got uh, Alzheimer's or sixty or dementia coming on. Why? Because you did something bad? It has gotta be changed. Is it still karmic? Yes, but it's also genetic. A good part of what we are is genetic. Can we change it? We can do a lot to change it. But see dementia as a deterioration of the body, not as something psychological. Please. Got it. We've, got to, we've got to change this. This is really, this, this, is, this is not right. Or all the people that, oh, they got cancer because they were really angry. How many times have I heard that? Have you met the people that have not been angry, really angry, and they don't have and they and they don't have cancer? How many angry people are there in the world who don't have cancer? Dictators, mass murderers. What did Mao die of? Old age. How many people did he kill? Officially, officially in the record books, how many people did he kill? The greatest mass murderer on the planet. 75 million people he was personally responsible for killing. The greatest mass murder. What did he die of? Old age, it wasn't dementia. He still has, he, to some degree, he still has wits of it. So, wait a minute. Go look at the numbers. Go look at the facts. Stop the fantasy world, would you? Do you know what I mean? If some of you get dementia, Right? Don't go blaming it because you had. Most of you actually are really have pretty good mind states, hmm? but you may have a weakness in your genetics that predisposes you for that. Or you ate, ate too many, uh, well, not Weetabix or something or whatever it was that. that Fizzies and and what's that? <laughs> and 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 marshmallows or whatever it was. That's it, red dye, and so what, you know, or, or you got some um, stray cosmic rays on your DNA when you were uh, in your 30s, and you've got mutations, or uh, whatever it was, you know, or you lived too close to the Love Canal, and was it New York or, or Michigan, yeah, New York, yeah. Or you lived in the woods, and you were clean, and you ate organic food, and um, but just got too much toxins from the pine trees or the cedar trees. That's highly toxic. It's highly toxic. Or you're surrounded by um, cats and got toxoplasmia. Yeah. Yeah, or one of those radioactive ones that you thought you collected antiques. And you're out in the woods and you collect an antiques and you got one of those ones from what was it, Bavaria or something like that or Romania, one of those beautiful yellowy glasses and you're drinking from it every day because it's beautiful, except that you're ingesting um, uranium or thorium into your system day by day by day by day. 
Who knows? And then there's ones that do that all their life, smoke, drink, right? And they live till 105 and they're still smiling with no teeth. See? How, and how'd you live so long? What do they report? I drink and I smoke. <laughs> and I eat bad food. <laughs> and tainted yogurt. I, I'm really not joking. I, I know I'm having fun, but, but really, it's the case. You have strong genetics? Yeah. It almost doesn't matter you're impervious. I, I really believe that. You have strong genetics? Impervious. Get, straight, get hit with a stray cosmic ray and it alters some DNA and it, it produces a cancerous cell? That's the way it goes. And if you don't have strong enough genetics to, to seek and destroy and repair that DNA or repair it, well, who knows? You might live, you might not. Today, you've got an even higher chance of living, right? Death rates from cancer are getting lower and lower. It's quite something. It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary what's happening in the, in the fields of cancer. Amazing. And there'll come a time when certain things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, those will be curable. Maybe not even long from now. Five, six, seven years, wouldn't be surprised. A whole bunch of those things, quite curable. Or preventable. B, applying others' impermanence to oneself. Practicing impermanence of death by applying others' impermanence. Practicing the permanence of death by applying others' impermanence, well, it's in quotations, marks, refers to observing another person's death, to hearing of another's death, and to recollecting it in the mind. Now, you see, you notice this is being done over and over and over again. Why? Why is this being repeated in this way, that way, this way, that way, uh, until you go, wow, uh, didn't I get it the first time? Because the clinging is massive. The cling's massive. So even if you get it intellectually, the moment you close the book, it comes back. Isn't that something? So even though you get it, you go, yeah, okay, I got it. I got it. I got it. I got it. I understand impermanence. I understand I'm going to die. Yes, 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 yes. And then you close the book, you go, oh, what can I do? You see? It's like, like right away. It's like, oh, looking in the mirror and going, maybe I should, maybe I should uh, get some Botox to, to uh, make myself look, you know, whatever it is. Or, or maybe I could, um, um, maybe, maybe uh, I could extend my life, or, you know, whatever. It's this sort of thing. But as soon as the book closes. How's my pension fund doing? How's my pension fund doing? Pretty bad, actually. <laughs> Pretty bad. Unreliable. Unreliable. There's people fiddling around the world right now doing kind of, kind of crazy stuff. and to recollecting it in the mind. First, practice the meditation on the impermanence of death by observing another who is dying. For example, consider when a close relative whose body is so strong, who has a very bright complexion and a positive feeling, and who has no feeling of death in his mind, uh, not at any cost. Excuse me. Yeah, I saw that one before. Okay, not at any cost means what? Doesn't matter how much money you have, no matter what you do, it's going to happen. Anybody know anybody in the peak of health within a week or two passed away? Just like that. Dear friend, 
two children in the 30s, got a cough, ended up in the hospital, went to visit her, looked great, case of lung cancer, week and a half later dead. That's so short, just like that. And healthy. Good, strong, good, strong, bright, beautiful, kind, compassionate human being. Boom, gone like that. And you might have some other instances of that, yes? Strong, healthy, gone. Even people I hear about occasionally, doing something, running, sports, something like that, drop dead. Just like that, drop dead. Suppose he is suddenly caught by a deadly disease. All the strength of his body is lost and he cannot even sit up. His radiant face or complexion disappears. His face becomes colorless. His feeling is that of suffering. He cannot tolerate the sickness. He cannot endure the pain. The medicines and medical treatments have no effect. Religious rituals and ceremonies no longer help. He understands that he will die and that there is no other choice. He gathers his last friends and relatives, eats his last food, repeats his last words. At that time, contemplate, this is what you contemplate, I am also of the same essential nature, in the same condition, and have the same character. I am not beyond this reality of dying, of impermanence. Good, 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 good. When his breathing is stopped from then, no matter how lovable and important he may have been in that house. From that point on, he cannot pass one more day there. He is laid down on a stretcher, bound and tied across, and the corpse carrier takes him out. Some people of his household embrace the corpse and pretend to cling to it affectionately. Others weep and pretend to be dejected. Others fall to the ground and faint, while some other friends say that the body is earth and stone, and that these actions are silly and not very meaningful. And there's all the stuff that goes on around death. The ones that are impervious to it, the ones that don't care, the ones that weep and wail and gnash their teeth, the ones that will never get over it emotionally. What they're saying here is the entire spectrum of emotional behavior around death, from complete indifference, like, oh yeah, so dead, okay, fine, over it. And the other ones that are uh, gnashing their teeth and wailing, for, for day after day after day after day. So he's just, just describing the entire range of, of human emotions around death. Once the corpse has been carried out of the house and you see that it will never return to the house, then you should practice the meditation. Recollect all this and contemplate, quote, I am also the same essential nature, in the same condition, and have the same character. I am not beyond this reality doesn't happen so much anymore, does it? It's quite divorced. So in other words, people down the street, they just don't... You're, you're, you know, in our communities, yes? You usually go to the hospital and you don't hear about it, or you hear about it in the newspaper, or you hear about it, someone tells you, but you're not seeing it. You're not seeing it. Yeah. When his corpse is brought to the cemetery and thrown there, when it is eaten by maggots, dogs, jackals, other wild beasts and so forth, when the bones are scattered here and there. Now this is to do with sky burial in Tibet. It's not uh, burnt. So in Tibet the body is taken up uh, up to the mountains and there are specialists 
that hack the body up and, uh, and feed it uh, to the uh, jackals and the birds and the, and the vultures and so on. That's how it's done in Tibet. So he's describing it. When the bones are scattered here and there, when you see these things, recollect as before by contemplating that, quote, I am also the same nature and so forth. Not so easy to do anymore, is it? It's not easy. It's very pretty, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Have you seen people in caskets? Mm-hmm. Yeah? It's all very pretty. Look very nice. Almost, almost alive, except that they're not breathing. <laughs> but they're all done up. They're a nice jacket and so on. You close the casket and put in the earth and, and um, go visit them. <laughs> go visit them once a year. Visit them once a year. Okay. Practice the impermanence of death by hearing that others have died. So, you know, a good meditation, we're not going to necessarily do it in this retreat. Why don't you read some newspapers? You know, I do all the time. I read history, read newspapers. I, stay, I, I, I want to know what human beings are up to. And one of the things, often... In retreats, people have asked me, why do you... It's actually very common. Why in retreat, when you're teaching a retreat, you read books on war? The history of a war. History of the First World War, the history of the Second World War. Um, history of uh, war, war between China, uh, Pakistan, and India. Uh, largest troop concentration, military buildup in the world. Why, 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 why do you do this? Because I'm contemplating life as it is. Just makes brings it home. I'm not exposed to it so much, so I want to know what real life is about. It's real life, real life drama, real life thing. I even went to um, a place in Pakistan because I wanted to see what it was like uh, just shortly after a war. I want to see what that's like. What's it like to look at buildings that have uh, rocket attacks? The Suez Canal in 1975 going through the Suez Canal. In 1975, after a six-day war, tanks burnt out, littered here and there. Still haven't been cleared. The canal was open, but they still hadn't cleared tanks and burnt out charred tanks and sort of thing in the desert. So it's good. It's good. It's really good. Ethiopia, once. I can't remember. Small town. We, st- we stopped in Ethiopia. There, was, there happened to be a civil war the year before. Burnt out buildings, uh, bullet, bullet holes in buildings, this sort of thing. Hunks of buildings gone. It's good. Good to see it. Practice the impermanence of death by hearing that others have died. When you hear that someone is dead or that there is a corpse, recollect the impermanence of death as before by contemplating that. Quote, I am also the same nature and so forth. Practice the impermanence of death by recollecting others who have died. Recollect the dead, young or old, who accompanied you in your country, town, or home. Recollect, that is, recollect people you know have died. Gosh, they've died. How do you feel emotionally? Like, yeah, they've died, but I'm okay for tomorrow and the next day and the next year. That's not going to happen to me. Do you you feel that emotionally? Well, yeah, they've died, but it's not going to happen to me. Like, I've got time. I've got all the time in the world. 
Some of you aren't going, got all the time in the world. Yeah. But I know a lot of people that have that feeling. Yes, I've got all the time in the world. Recollect this as before by contemplating that, quote, before too long I will also be of the same nature, and so forth. It says in a sutra, in a sutra, quote, since it is uncertain when, sorry, uh, since it is uncertain which will come earlier, tomorrow or the world hereafter, then without making effort for tomorrow, one should get ready for the hereafter. What it means is without getting, making effort, as without clinging without clinging for tomorrow, without clinging to, well, how shall I be then, or what will I do, who shall I be, get your act together and awaken, because uh, soon you'll be gone. Number three, beneficial effects of meditation. This is the last paragraph. Awareness of the impermanence of all composite phenomena leads one to release attachment to this life. Further, now it doesn't say thinking about it. It says contemplation, meditation, yes? Meditation, awareness. Awareness of the impermanence of all composite phenomena leads one to the release, to release attachment to this life, not thinking about it. Awareness is awareness. That means a high degree of mindfulness. Further, it nourishes faith. It nourishes confidence. You gain great confidence. Supports perseverance and quickly frees one from attachment and hatred. It becomes a cause for the realization of the equal nature of all phenomena. You see all phenomena of having the same nature. What nature? It's all empty. Which doesn't have any negative connotation at all. It is suchness. It is the way the universe actually is without any kind of mental taint or fabrication. But you have to mature to this. You know, it takes a lot of uh, maturity to want to come out of fantasy and see the universe as it is. Not, not as you've been told, not as you've been learned in science, not as you've learned in biology, not as you've learned in psychology. Yeah? Not what your family told you, not what your culture tells you. Through how? Through awareness. What is this universe really like in terms of the human experience? Yeah, without fantasy, without fabrication. Strip it bare. Strip it bare. Strip it bare. Okay. This is the fourth chapter dealing with the impermanence of all composite phenomena. It's interesting, eh? It's often treated as the chapter on death. Right? Which you then go, me. But actually, it, it just got moved to a very, very high insight meditation for liberation, for wisdom attainment, which is the impermanence of all composite phenomena, from the jewel ornament of liberation, the wish-fulfilling gem of the noble teachings. Great. Wonderful. Glorious book. And we'll begin uh, tomorrow morning. The Antidote to Attachment to Samsara's Pleasures, Chapter 5, The Suffering of Samsara. Any questions about that? If you do, I think it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? It's really quite straightforward. You might have some. Anything? Yes.
because there's too much level of anxiety about getting on with the work because death is approaching. So how do you how do you deal with uh, too much anxiety? Because you know, see, as it says in the text, if you fall into anxiety, it's not right. It's about it's a reality check of actually the way things are to get you to get on with it. But if you're, if you're meditating on impermanence and death with anxiety, it's completely wrong. It must be done from a place of loving kindness. That's, that's the corrective method. It must be. Because uh, there, there should be no anxiety about death. It's just, when you see it everywhere, it takes the anxiety away because you just go, wait a minute, this is simply the way it is. The only anxiety, if you're fearful because you haven't lived enough, or so what I recommend is you see the beauty about living now. If you really love life, less and less do you be scared about death. And by, by the way, too, uh, talk to people. Of, uh, life is uh, death is beautific. I'm, I'm actually quite someone in my family quite quite thankful that they've had a beautiful death experience already, and and they're quite um, sure about about what it's like to do it. So, um, no, you have to cut through the you have to cut through the anxiety uh, through insight, and must have a basis of loving kindness to, to see the world as it is, not uh, as a world of anxiety and fear. This is not to this. Yes, there's an element of the way this is taught and promoted to get you to get you onto it, a fear. You're gonna die, and there's a chance you're gonna get born in hell. Fire and brimstone. So you better get on with it. I don't find this works with, with many Westerners. Personally, I don't, don't see it working. Because um, for many Westerners, rebirth is a theoretical construct. So you haven't been brought up in it. Therefore, it's not, uh, for many people, I'm not saying you, but for many people, it's not, it doesn't feel real. So... Uh, that, that doesn't that doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense, but um, if you're asking how to remove fear of death, then you have to live in a beatific state more and more and more, which is you have to go so deeply into life as it is, it's glorious every moment. The fear comes on. You see, the more there is realization or experience that the self is an illusory construct. And the more you experience the death of that illusory construct, the less there is a fear of death because you keep dying. So unless you die now, you're going to be scared. You need to learn to die again and again and again and again and again and again. All the highest yoga tantra teachings practice dying over and over and over. Dissolution of all formations into the clear light nature of the mind. Good insight leads to what? Self-vanishing. More and more moments where you experience the glory, the sheer, unmitigated majesty, glory, release of the vanishing of the self-construct. And then reappearing. And go, phew, no, I'm just kidding. That was over. No. Completely the opposite. Wishing to go to again and again and again. Not to die, 
but to dwell in what? Cessation. Cessation of what? Clinging. So, uh, more and more moments of real, non-clinging awareness remove the fear of death. That's what you need. Just soaked more and more in non-clinging awareness and loving-kindness, and the fear of death comes off. A being that deeply, deeply contemplates loving-kindness, conjoined with some insight, will not fear death. And there's a good chance they've experienced death a whole bunch of times in meditation. Dying. In meditation. What's like to die in meditation? Go. Go, 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 go. Gone. It's beautiful. You just need that confidence. Beautiful. Then it's maybe hard to hold, hold you back. You know, there was a time, uh, supposedly, thus I, have, thus I have read. Should I say it? Wasn't there firsthand. Uh, at least this, this being wasn't. And uh, in the time of the Buddha, uh, there was a whole be- bunch of beings, supposedly 500 arahats, yes? Fully purified, uh, uh, personally completely purified of, of all emotional taints, and very good meditators, which means they could enter into Naroda Samapati. Uh, and they decided, well, why be here anymore? The body's kind of uh, getting in the way. So they all popped off at once. Imagine the Buddha came back, and there's 500 dead bodies. This is according to what I've read. Okay? Comes back, there's 500 dead bodies. He was a little ticked off. I mean, okay, was the Buddha ticked off? Well, he was, he was, <laughs> he was having words, if you know what I mean. You know, words with the other bhikkhus who, I guess, watched this. Wasn't that cool? And said, no, this is unwholesome. It's very, very unwholesome. This is not compassion. It's unwholesome activity to... It's interesting. Arahats having unwholesome activity. Um, dying. Basically committing suicide. Why? Why would they hold on the body anymore? Blissful surrender into the way the universe is with, with mind going and joining the universe in blissful continual awareness. Cessation. Glory. So once you know that, it's kind of like, what's going to hold you back? So more deeper, deeper, deeper experiences of the experience of non-clinging awareness, which is the cessation of self-clinging. And clinging to the body, and clinging to memories, everything goes. And then re-emerging, and as that deepens and deepens and deepens, there'll be less moments of fear around death. Okay? That's the supreme root. All the rest are mental antidotes of stories. But for you, I encourage you more and more direct meditation on impermanence, direct meditation on mind. See what is. Yeah. Yes? I'm wondering if you can... um Yes, yes. Well, that's what causes fear of death. If you understand life, you'll see that it is permeated by death. It's permeated by birth, it's permeated by growth, and it's permeated by death. Everywhere. It's right in front of you. This is why um, I believe, I think I heard many times, I'll just say I believe I heard, I was probably there many times, but where did it come from? But uh, trust in the universe of arising and passing away, soaking in that, 
Yeah? Is the way it is. Insight meditation is contemplating what is. So fear of life is, is because there simply isn't enough wisdom. How can you have fear of life? Where, how could you? You're not living. I mean, I know it sounds funny, but to me it's very obvious. If you're scared of life, you're not living. You're in a world divorced from life. Maybe you have to go farming. Maybe you need to live in a place where it's out of a, out of a city life, where it's actually real, where at any point death happens, where you see you see birds dying, and and you know, for instance, we found a, a dead uh, hummingbird on the porch, but you don't know if it hit the glass. But I've seen birds. I tell you, I've seen birds in retreat, where I'm walking along, it's flying towards me. I'm not kidding. I was meditating on impermanence. And it went like this, on the deck. They die. That was a good experience. They die. It didn't hit the window. It probably died of a parasite or, or something. It dies. They just die. I've watched them die. I've watched animals die, just die. You need that. You need to see... Uh, what life is. Life is death, life is birth, life is growth. It's beautiful, it's glorious. At the, um, so live. Live. Yeah. Live. At, at the uh, Green Tara weekend before the retreat, mm -hmm. um, uh, there was a lot that was, that was said, and one of the things that you mentioned there was about fear of physical sensation. Mm -hmm. and that You've said that that was a, a very generally that a lot of people are, are fearful of physical sensation. Yes. And so is that part of? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But this is this is something. There's there's people that that have a high level of physical threshold of physical pain that aren't really scared of it too much. Now, what I mean is that even if you have a person that has a high threshold of pain. When it comes to their emotions, they're really terrified. They're caught up in it. And what people forget is that emotions are physical. So when I, when I made that statement, it was about, why are people so scared of sensation? Because if you're not scared of sensation, you meditate on sensation and the nature of sensation, you will not be scared of emotions. Because you know what it is. It's a physical change in your body, I mean, how many women here are? How many women here in the room uh, that are still menstruating are scared of menstruating? Scared of menstruating. And some some women. Uh, let's let's just talk generally. It's very painful, yes. But are they scared of menstruating? Some women here who have menstruated. Scared. Well, what's a, what's an emotion? It's a physical sensation conjoined with a whole bunch of thoughts. Why scared? Where, where's the upsetness? That's really what I'm referring to. And including what? Fear of death is imaginary. So when people say to me, well, I'm scared of dying, I go, you're in a fantasy trip. 
You know all this is a fantasy trip, right? You, you, I hope you know that, that, that all this right now is a conjured mental event. You, you know that, right? Including your sensations. It's just dreaming. So what would you be scared of death about but a mental number? And if you're scared of life, what would you be scared about? A divorced mind from actually the way things are. There's no. There's actually no other possibility. One. Give me one. Give me another possibility. I, I do like debate sometimes, you know. Give me one shred of another possibility that you've got of why you'd why being would either be scared of death or scared of life. What other possibility would be? There's not one experience that isn't dreamed up in the mind. And death and birth and life are dreamed up by the mind, including the death experience, including rebirth, is created by the mind. Right now, it's completely conjured by the mind. Collectively, culturally, most of what you're experiencing, a lot of what you're experiencing, isn't you. It's collective karma. It's collective karma. But you walk around absolutely convinced it's your story. It's not your story. Collective story making. And you go, oh, it's me, my guns, my, my stuff. Just collective. You, you get born into a soup of collective karmic patterning. This world is born of collective, everything that's happening on the planet, right? Could you imagine in a split second if a whole bunch of people in places of power and authority changed their minds, what would happen on this planet? It'd be shocking. It'd be absolutely shocking. The change of karmic patterning and results all, all the way across this planet. Why do things happen on this planet? Because decisions are made. You see? Do you see? It's all decision-making. How does decision-making happen? It doesn't happen from outer space. It happens because collectively there's delusion. And people buy into it. And they keep it going. And they keep changing it under different words and different guises. It's the same thing. All sensation is actually a fabrication of the mind. All sensation. But you can get realer than not. So when you practice mindfulness of sensation, you want to get really real, but it's still not. Okay? To get really, really down to it, and that takes the delusion off. But you may wake up and realize one day that all sensation is made up in the mind. But you have to go a long, long distance to do that. But before you do that, you better be darn sure that your mindfulness is high enough to discern sensation clearly without mental fabric, without a lot of mental fabrication. That's clean. Do you know what I mean? You can discern, as the Buddha said, you can discern uh, pleasurable from painful, wholesome from unwholesome, p- 
pleasurable, unpleasurable, and neutral. You need that for personal freedom. If you can't do that, you're not going to have personal freedom because you're always sucked into a story about sensation, feelings, states of mind, and phenomena. Like, that's a really bad knife. I mean, that, that knife could kill someone. It's a, that's a serious-looking serious weapon. Isn't it? Isn't that a serious-looking weapon? Yeah. Made up in the mind. Another person going, that's so beautiful. Where do I get those? I'd like to have a whole house full of those. That, that speaks to me emotionally. It speaks to me spiritually. Yes? Some other person's going, why, that knife's pointing at me. Why, 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 why does he have that on the table? Who put it there? Do you see? All built up, everything, built up in the mind. Somebody else might walk in the room and say, why do you have a, a, a table that's used for eating uh, in a vertical position on, a, uh, on an easel? I remember uh, living in the Arctic when I used to work for the, for the housing corporation, many incarnations in this life, as a surveyor for the housing corporation. And we had a situation that came up. Uh, I remember my boss talking about one of their houses. Uh, somebody knocked a hole in the side of a $250,000 house, which is now would be worth about half, half a million. No, $7,500? 75, about three-quarters of a million dollars today. And because it was warm in the house, they actually knocked a hole in the wall through a modern house to vent because uh, it's too warm, to bring fresh air. There's windows. But why? Because that's what you do in a tent or an igloo. And they were going, do you know what the repair costs are going to be that house? Or lighting fires inside a house? Or using the floor... Uh, the linoleum floor as your dining as your your cutting board. I've seen that. Just huge gash marks. Why? Because in on the land you cut up caribou and seal uh, on the ground. Well, in your house, that, you do the same thing. Of course, you do the same thing. You take your knife and you just cut it right up along the linoleum or the carpet. Or in the kitchen, it's just linoleum and, or, or flooring. Just cut it up, chop it up. But for somebody else. That's a barbarian. For somebody else, it's sophisticated. Right? So where else does life get made up? In the mind. There's no such thing as life. It's made up in the mind. It's dreamed up in the mind. But it's wondrous and it's beautiful. It's glorious. If you don't cling. If you cling, the worse you cling, the more it hurts. Or, there's two ways to go. The more you cling, the more it hurts. Or, the more you cling, the more you live in doo-doo fantasy land. It's all great. What an amazing... You know that smile? What an amazing world. <laughs> it's, I'm so happy about everything. It's like so mystical and so magnificent. And everybody just like, you know, we're living in a, like, you know, fantasy. Fantasy. It's all fantasy. But if you strip it bare, it's glory. Why? Because now you're living in the way of the universe. It's empty. Empty of all clinging. The universe is actually empty of all clinging. It doesn't cling. It doesn't cling. Even tornadoes don't cling. Think a tornado clings? Think clouds cling? 
Tsunamis, do they cling? They don't even cling to shore very long, do they? It's no laughing matter if your body's, if you're, if you're being taken out in a tsunami. But they don't actually cling very long because there's no clinging. It's all made up in the human mind. I'm going to remain here for a little bit, uh, no more than half an hour. And uh, if anybody needs, needs, needs to talk to me, I shall remain here if you need to talk to me. If you don't need to talk to me, I'll see you uh, tomorrow at the tent, yes? And then we can uh, explore the uh, next uh, chapter together. By this uh, powerful activity, thank goodness Gampopa, thank goodness this precious lineage, glorious, all the way back to the Buddha's time. By this powerful activity, may it leave the cessation of uh, suffering for all beings. Inante punikamang asawakiwang motu, inante punikamang asawakiwang motu, inante punikamang asawakiwang motu. May all beings be well and happy. May all beings be established in a continuity of freedom, the perfect unity of wisdom and compassion, and the full manifestation of Buddhahood for all beings. Many blessings, many blessings, many blessings. The, in the translation of Idante Punikamang Asawaki Wahanghotu, I often say uh, for the cessation of uh, suffering. But, but literally it means the cessation of floods. The reason I say suffering is that if I say aso or floods, it, for a lot of people it doesn't mean anything. So I say suffering. But actually the, the technical meaning is asawa, which means emotional, conflicted emotional flooding, to take, being taken away in bewilderment. So uh, that's actually the technical meaning. But I modify it because I find if you modify it in English and you work with the various meanings, it keeps it fresh and also it... It um, brings out things. Sometimes if you say things in Bali or Sanskrit or Tibetan as a prayer or a contemplation, it actually, you're saying it in that language, but it may not be immediately translatable to your mind as a living reality. Do you know what I mean by that? So, so uh, it's actually good, I believe, sometimes to say it, say it in English and not just say it in Pali or Sanskrit or, or Tibetan. Say it in English too, to get a feel for it. Good. Good night. Good night.